I want to call your attention now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. This is the chapter, of course, from which that hymn is derived, John chapter 6. We have been in looking at this chapter for about seven weeks now, and we come today to verses 30 through 33. Let us read John 6, beginning at verse 30. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Let us pray once again. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of Holy Scripture. Give your blessing to it, we pray. And bless it to our hearts as we consider it and meditate upon it. and Look at it together now. Give grace to us all. We ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> John chapter 6 records in detail two eventful days, two crucial days in the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first day begins with thousands following him. The second day ends with thousands leaving him to follow him no more. And in the course of the conversation here on the second day, which occurred in the synagogue in Capernaum, the Lord Jesus keeps pointing this multitude to himself. We saw him earlier in verses 26 and 27 saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. He's referring to the miraculous feeding of 5,000 the day before, as recorded earlier in the chapter. Then he gives them in verse 27 this admonition, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. The Lord points them away from carnal food to spiritual food. And he does the same thing in so many words in verse 29 once again in response to what they said in verse 28. He said, this is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. He's saying in so many words, don't focus your attention on signs and miracles. Focus your attention on me. 
the Savior. Well, it would be so happy if, beginning in verse 30, we read something like this. Then they understood his sayings, and they humbled themselves before him, and turned from their carnal thinking and their earthly temporal thinking to spiritual and heavenly things. And they repented of their sins and turned from all of their self-righteousness and sought the spiritual benefits that come only through Jesus. And they trusted in him and became his disciples and followed him faithfully thereafter. Oh, that we read such things as these. But instead, it says this. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? This multitude in the synagogue in Capernaum asks these questions, and they are surprising questions. They're very disappointing questions. And that is because at least many of them had witnessed one of the greatest miracles that Christ ever wrought less than 24 hours previously. They had witnessed the feeding of the 5,000 with nothing but five small pieces of bread and two small fish. And they had eaten of it themselves. And that's just one thing. We read that before that miraculous feeding, according to uh, the, the account in Matthew and Mark, he wrought miracles of healing upon those that were there. Not only that, but we read earlier in chapter 6 and verse 2 that this great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. Christ had a whole ministry, a whole pattern of Miraculous signs and especially healings and casting out of devils and so on that he had done from the beginning of his public ministry. He was about a year and a half or so into it at this point. <clears throat> and yet these people ask him in so many words, show us your credentials. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe? What dost thou work? They're saying, Jesus, if you're the one that God has sent, as you keep saying, then back up your claim with a sign, a miracle. We're going to put you to the test. Prove to us. Show us, if you can pass this test, show us some great miracle. This is just outrageous, isn't it? It's, it's in a way insane. 
It's as if they've completely forgotten all that Christ did just the previous day, let alone in earlier days as well. They downplay all that he had done up to this point. It's as if this is a new day, we're starting from scratch here, and and you've got to prove to us who you are. You're talking about our working to believe, verse 28. What are you working that should induce us to believe? Do we not, beloved, find ourselves rather shocked at these questions? It's as if they've they've just completely lost their memory. They're suffering from some sort of group amnesia all of a sudden. Well, as 1 Corinthians 1 says, truly the Jews require a sign. (laughs) These Jews required sign after sign after sign. Perhaps some of these had already heard him say earlier, as recorded in Matthew chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Well, here they are at it again. What sign? Do you show us? So you you get the sense as you read the narrative here that the attitude of this multitude is quickly changing with regard to Christ. They, They sort of turn a corner here in verse 30, it seems, and begin to speak in an antagonistic tone. To the Lord Jesus. They're no longer as considerate of what he said and compliant in some ways. They're beginning to look upon him with with suspicion, if not perhaps some contempt. This is part of the drama of John chapter 6. What's going on here is... They are looking for an excuse not to believe. And they think they have found it. They're looking for some excuse to delay, at least, believing on him, as he had told them repeatedly that they must do. And the excuse they find is, Uncertainty about his authority. They are questioning his authority. Are you really who you say you are? Give us more evidence of who you are. Prove to us that you are sent from God in heaven. Has human nature changed any in 2,000 years? Is this not what we hear to this day? Those who simply do not want to believe on Christ often raise these same objections. They bring up the question of his authority, even of his deity. 
of his truly being sent from heaven to earth in terms of his divine nature. People say things like, well, who is Jesus? How do we know that he is who he said he was? How is Jesus different from any other person that had a the type of personality that just draws a following uh, we see that kind of thing in you know in in mass psychology all the time we want more evidence we want some proof and some will even go so far as to say something like this if you give me more proof i will believe on him would they Did these people? Is it really a lack of proof? Is it a lack of evidence that keeps people from believing on Christ? Would more evidence make any difference? You recall the rich man in hell who said to Abraham, if Lazarus would rise from the dead and go to my brothers on earth, then they would believe. And Abraham said, no, they wouldn't. Seeing a risen from the dead, Lazarus would not convince them if they're not already convinced by the word of God and by what Moses has written. They would find some objection, some argument against Lazarus. Oh, this isn't really Lazarus. How can we know this is really Lazarus? You can just imagine the kinds of Objections that would be raised. Think furthermore of many at the scene of the crucifixion of Jesus himself. And comparing the the four gospels, you see that it was one after another and group after group that all said something like this. Let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe him. Let him do this one great miracle of escaping death, coming down somehow from the cross, and then we'll believe. Would they have? Do you really think they would have? (laughs) Of course not. He did something greater than come down from the cross. He came up from the grave. And they didn't believe him even on, with all that evidence either. Generally speaking, thank God for those in in whom the the grace of God wrought salvation uh, on the day of Pentecost and thereafter uh, in the book of Acts. But I'm saying all that to say this. It is not lack of proof that keeps people from believing on Christ. It's lack of desire. It is an unwillingness to believe on him. And the The demand for more evidence is just an excuse. You notice these people, the the wording that they use in verse 30, they want to see so that they might believe. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe? We won't believe until we see. It sounds like Thomas on the day of resurrection, doesn't it? He said, I'll, I'm not going to believe Jesus has risen from the dead unless I see him. Well, very patiently and graciously, Jesus came back 
the following uh, week and says, okay, here you can see me now. You can see me now. Thomas believed, but at that point Jesus said, blessed are they who believe without seeing. And as Paul says to the Corinthians, we walk by faith, not by sight. The biblical order is not see and believe, it's believe and see. The truth is, Christ has already given abundant proof. And we have the written record of it. Acts chapter 1 speaks of the many infallible proofs of his resurrection. Paul speaks of hundreds who saw him at the same time in one gathering. There in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, he says, most of them are still alive. If there's any doubt in your mind, here's, here's their addresses. Go and talk to them. And yet, 2,000 years later, people are saying, oh, we don't really know if he rose from the dead. If you don't believe the record that God has given then having Jesus stand here before you in person today would not convince you. Even that evidence, you would find some way to deny. There's never enough evidence for one who is determined not to believe. And so, let us not make the fatal mistake of these Jews Friend, do not make the mistake, the fatal mistake of disbelieving because of some pretended lack of evidence and lack of certainty. We have every reason to believe on Christ simply based upon what he's already shown us and what he's already done and the testimony that's already been given. Let me point out one other thing uh, from verse 30. You compare the wording of Jesus actually in verse 29. He uses this phrase, believe on him whom he hath sent. And, And I would just mention for your consideration this, this preposition on, or it's sometimes translated in. Jesus is talking about believing on him, which is a beautiful picture, we might say, of resting upon him, coming to lean upon him and depend upon him. You notice they omit the preposition in verse 30. They say that we may see and believe thee. They don't say believe on you. They say believe you. And I don't mean to make too much of this, but I, I think it's, it's noteworthy. They are simply talking about acknowledging his credibility. He's talking about something far beyond that. He's talking about actual trust and resting of the soul upon him or resting of the soul in him. They're, it's as if they're not even speaking the same language here and on the same page with him on this matter. Well, 
let's look at verse 31. After asking these insulting questions, they inform Jesus in verse 31 of the answer to their questions that they desire. It's as if they're going to ask him the question and before giving him a chance to answer, they're going to answer it for him in the way of at least implying the answer that they're looking for. They say this, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What are they saying? Jesus, in the good old days of Moses, our forefathers ate manna. Every day, it came six days a week, and on on uh, on Friday there was there was two days supply of this bread that came from heaven. We read about this in the Old Testament. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. That is a quotation from Psalm seventy-eight, which says this: He rained down manna upon them to eat. And had given them of the corn of heaven or the grain of heaven. Man did eat angels food. It's, this manna was called angels food. He sent them meat or provision to the full. Well, these people were at least familiar with the Old Testament history and the history of their, of their forefathers. Why do they bring this up? Well, Measuring by the response that Jesus gave to it in verse 32, we gather what they mean here. They're saying Moses was a prophet, and he proved his divine appointment by this miraculous sign, by feeding our nation. All those years in the desert, day after day. Now, Jesus, honestly, you've only fed us one day, not 40 years. And we know where your food came from. It came from the field. After all, there was some bread. It came through the the mill and through the oven. But it wasn't food from heaven. And, of course, the fish came from the Sea of Galilee Moses brought manna from heaven as his sign. That was his proof. May we suggest that if you want us to believe you, you must do something more spectacular than what you've done thus far. You must do something that's more like what Moses did. Moses set a very high bar that you have not attained to yet. This is the the contemptuous spirit of these people. What arrogance, what shameless insult to the many mighty miracles that he had done. It seems that they're asking Jesus, they, they don't want to say it directly, but they just want to sort of hint at it you know, that, that, that food yesterday was so good, we want it for 40 years. Feed us for the rest of our life. 
it certainly shows that their interest was still focused on earthly things, still focused upon food for their bellies, rather than eternal life that Jesus had just been speaking to them about. I agree with the observation of A.T. Robertson here. He says, it is hard to have patience with this superficial and almost sneering mob. Well, Jesus is very patient with them. But before we go into that, let me just point out one other thing here. It's interesting to remember that the forefathers that ate this manna for 40 years repeatedly rejected Moses, murmured against Moses, rebelled against him. They even talked about stoning him sometimes. And they did not appreciate the manna. They despised it. They didn't like it. They wanted something else. We read in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. We absolutely hate this manna, in other words. And yet, here is this generation in Jesus' day, glossing over all of that ugly history and speaking in these lofty terms of their ancestors as if they were great saints when really they were unbelievers. Surely there's a lesson to be learned. There's a lot of revisionist history that goes on in every generation. But we hasten on here to the response that Jesus gave in verses 32 and 33. Yes, I think if I'd been there, I would have just turned, shaken my head and and walked away. But Jesus is so patient and long-suffering with this crowd. They are the ones that ended up turning and walking out a little later. He begins with this solemn preface, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is a very solemn and authoritative word that he's about to say. It's as if he says, pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. He seems to be saying to them, first of all, make sure that you identify the source of the manna that your forefathers ate. Make sure that you correctly identify the meaning of that whole episode for those 40 years in the desert. It was not really Moses that gave the bread. It was the Father in heaven who gave that manna. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, you're thinking more 
of the means rather than the source. And so it is with carnal minds in every generation. Carnal minds fail to see God behind everything. And the question for us today is this. Do we see God behind everything? Or do we, do we credit to means the honor and praise that rightly only goes to God? But there's more here. Jesus says at the end of verse 32, My Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Reading through this, you would expect this to be a past tense verb. You'd expect him to say, Moses didn't give you the manna, but my Father in heaven gave you the manna. No, he says, the Father is giving. He's speaking in the present tense. The Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. He's now bestowing it. He's now providing it. And that shows us that these, these people of the Jews, this multitude, did not recognize what was actually occurring in their midst. They did not appreciate what was going on right then and there that day. Jesus says to them in so many words, God is presenting you spiritual bread now. God is offering you spiritual bread now. And the people didn't even recognize it. I would just point out in passing that here in verse 32, the Father is spoken of as the one who is the giver of the spiritual bread. Back in verse 27, it's the Son who is said to be the giver of the spiritual bread or meat or food. Here we see the trinity of persons. It's the work of the Father. It's the work of the Son. And no doubt in some respects we could consider it the work of the Holy Spirit as well. But the point that I would underscore here is this. Carnal minds overlook present privileges. Carnal minds overlook present opportunities just like these people did. It's as if they were blind to what was taking place in a spiritual dimension right in front of them. They didn't have eyes to see it. And the same is true with multitudes today. Is it the same way with you, my friend? God forbid, may it not be so. May all of us here today recognize what God is doing and and who Jesus is and what spiritual bread is and what spiritual life is. As far as the meaning is concerned of of the 40 years of manna being provided day by day, Jesus is saying to these people in so many words, you've missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point of the manna. It was simply a type and shadow of something greater to come. My Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. I read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where the the food that God provided 
there in those years in the book of Exodus is called spiritual meat. It says those in that generation did all eat the same spiritual meat. How can manna be described as spiritual meat in this way? And, and looking at it from this perspective, that this that it was a type and picture or example of what Jesus calls true bread. True bread. My Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. He's telling them that they must focus on this spiritual dimension. He, he's saying it in different ways again and again through this chapter. And yet these carnal minds just remain carnally minded. May God help us to escape the bondage of purely carnal thinking and to see the spiritual significance of things and the spiritual realities that are going on all about us. Jesus speaks of himself, and we'll, we'll see that he is the bread of life there in verse 35, Lord willing, next time. But he, he speaks of himself as the true bread from heaven, as in contrast to that manna that, of course, it was real and true in that sense, but it was just a type. It was a picture. It was a shadow as the people physically ate the manna and their life was preserved. So spiritually, we must feed on Christ and derive life eternal from him. In that sense, he's the true bread and in the Gospel of John, he's called the true light and the true vine. In the book of Hebrews, he's called the true tabernacle and the true holy place. But I hasten on now to verse 33, where Jesus makes this explanation. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying something far greater than manna is going on. Something far greater than anything that could be credited to Moses or that Moses was instrumental in is going on. I would point out that the pronoun he there in the first part of verse 33 might just as well be translated that so that it, what Jesus is saying here might be translated like this. The bread of God is that which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And certainly... He makes the identification of himself as that in verse 35. But I, I think that he, he doesn't say it before verse 35 in such clear and straightforward uh, language when he says, I am the bread of life. That, that was the bombshell, we might say. Here he's still speaking in, in somewhat uh, parable-like terms. The bread of God is that which cometh down from heaven. He's saying there's 
there's there's a bread greater than manna that is is being spread around. This true bread, and he makes several contrasts here, and I'll have to go through these quickly. Contrasts of what he calls true bread as opposed to manna, and how that this true bread, which is ultimately Jesus himself, is superior to the manna of the Old Testament in the days of Moses. Number one is this, the true bread is that which comes down from the highest heaven. Now, they've called manna bread from heaven there in verse 31, quoting from the Old Testament. But that manna was like the, uh, the, the, uh, the dew or the frost upon the ground that, as they th- spoke of it as coming from heaven, we would think of it as coming from the first heaven, the atmosphere. Jesus, the bread of life, came from far beyond just the atmosphere. He comes from the third heaven, the heaven where God dwells. So that's one contrast. And I, again, would not go overboard with this, but I think it's worth considering that he could be giving a a hint here of his eternal preexistence or the the eternal preexistence of his divine nature that came down from heaven. And it's interesting, we see that phrase coming down or came down no less than seven times in this chapter in the remainder of this chapter it's a very significant wording that we should not overlook concerning his pre-existent deity and equality with the father that as the son became incarnate as a man in the virgin birth Upon earth. But there's another contrast. This true bread, he says, gives life. Now, think about the manna just for a moment. It didn't really give life, it prolonged life to those who were already alive, but it couldn't give life to those that were dead. But Jesus says here that the true bread that he's talking about, spiritual bread, gives life. And I would give a full meaning to that. It imparts life. It originates life. And so the bread that Jesus is talking about is superior to manna in this respect. It gives life to those that are dead. The truth is, we're dead in our sins. Until Christ imparts life until he who is the true bread gives us life. And so implied here is new birth, regeneration, quickening, being brought from death to life through Jesus Christ. And what is eternal life? It is to know God. As Jesus says in John chapter 17, to to know him intimately, to be in sweet fellowship with him. That is the true life that we get from the true bread, which is Jesus himself. And all of this comes to us by faith, by believing on him. A third contrast here, and, and this is very interesting to see. 
Let's read again verse 33. The bread of God is he or that which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto whom? Unto the world. Who derived benefit from manna? It was one generation of Jewish people. Who derives benefit from Christ as the Savior and the bread of life? It's not just one generation. It's people from every generation. And it's not just confined to one nation, to the nation of the Jews. It's dispersed to all the nations. He gives life unto the world. Do you see what's going on in this exchange between Jesus and the multitude? They're saying, we want a miracle like Moses. He says to them, there's a miracle much greater than anything in the days of Moses going on and you can't see it. You're missing out on it. What God was doing through Christ upon earth far exceeded anything that he did through Moses. The Lord Jesus is correcting their, their narrow thinking. You know, they're holding up this hoop and saying, you've got to jump through our hoop for us to believe you. He's saying, I've already jumped through a much bigger hoop than you even dreamed, ever dreamed of. He's expanding their thoughts to, to grasp greater, much greater things, greater spiritual realities. Let us make sure that we are thinking in those terms that Jesus is talking about. That we are thinking and living in terms of great spiritual realities. In view of which, things like manna are relatively small. Let us see in Jesus Christ... The greatest gift that the Father ever gave or ever could give. Let us see in Jesus a prophet. Yes, he's like Moses, but he far exceeds Moses in every way. He's the prophet of prophets. Moses was just a faint shadow of him as a prophet. Let us see in Jesus the life giver, the very bread of life, the life giver who gave up his life on the cross so that we might live by him. Jesus doesn't need to present any more credentials. He's telling these Jews there are credentials far beyond anything you ever imagined. And because that is so, Jesus is most worthy of your trust and mine. Do you trust in him? Do you believe on him? Do you rest your soul in his hands? 
do you know that you are accepted by God because of him and what he has done in your place? Oh, dead soul, look to this living Savior. Look to him in faith. He will save you.